they are always wonderful moments when we're together in God's presence, singing His praise, thanking Him, honoring Him, worshiping Him, praising Him. There's nothing like it. And you know, sometimes in moments like these, the Holy Spirit speaks because He wants to encourage us. He wants to help us in our journey where we're at, where we're at in life. And I really felt, you know, the Holy Spirit just give me a word, a prophetic word really, just before we get into God's word this morning, just to encourage you. And I really believe that the, the Lord wants us to really stop remembering what God's forgotten. Very simple. Stop remembering what God has forgotten, what God has forgiven. Don't let your mind go back there. Don't revive it. Don't recite it. Don't resurrect it or relive it. It's gone. That's what God says. When you begin to read the Word of God, this is our place in life. It really is. Not to live in the old, but to live in the brand new. Regarding our sin, this is God's approach to it. As far as the east is from the west, I will remember your sins no more. He's forgotten about it. He's erased it. It can't ever come to mind anymore in God's mind. So why do we allow the accuser to come and make it alive in our mind? Paul put it this way. Old things have passed, they're gone. Everything about my life now is brand new. You're a brand new creature in Christ Jesus. Faultless before him. Forgiven, brand new. Don't remember what God's forgotten. Don't remember what God's forgiven. Don't allow it to come up in your mind anymore. David understood this in Psalm 103 verse 2 when he said, Oh, bless the Lord, oh my soul. And forget not all of his benefits. He wasn't reminiscing over sin. He wasn't remembering all of the things that had gone on in his life, what he was focused on, what he was remembering, what he was bringing to his mind was all of the benefits. I can forget about my sin, but I'm going to remember all of the wonderful benefits that God has given me. I tell you, make that your practice, make that your discipline, make that your habit of life. And all of these wonderful new realities of this new creation life that God has given you in Christ will suddenly emerge. They're already there. But sometimes what happens is they get buried under all of these accusations that come bombarding, bombarded into our mind through the enemy. No, don't remember that stuff. Paul the Apostle again said this regarding his past. And you know these words well. Forgetting the things that are behind. I tell you, it takes discipline. It takes discipline to live 
a life of forgetfulness. Forget what is behind. He said, I'm forgetting what's behind and I'm going to run forward into all of the blessings that are in Christ Jesus for my life. What a wonderful way to live. And this is our portion. This is our privilege. This is what we have in Christ Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. We don't have to go back there and relive all of that old stuff and even allow it to come over that bloodline in the cross. No, we don't. Those things are buried in Christ Jesus through baptism and we have been raised into new life in Christ Jesus. This is our portion. This is the, the wonderful privilege that, that we have in him. Amen? So just, just let that settle in your heart. Let that settle in your heart. God doesn't want you hanging around in the past, remembering what he's forgotten, reviving it, allowing the enemy to recite it out to you. No. Deal with him firmly with the word of God and tell him you're forgiven, you're blood bought, blood washed, brand new. All that old stuff has gone and he's got no right, absolutely none at all. He's a liar and a thief and a deceiver from the beginning. He's got no right to hold you over that. Amen. Amen. Well, last week we were looking at Paul's amazing summary of what Jesus did when he died for us on the cross through his death and resurrection. We've been given new life in Christ. And we started to focus on one short verse that Paul uses to encapsulate the glorious achievements of Jesus as he gave his life for us to save us from our sin. In Romans chapter 4, verse 25, Paul declares in one sentence, Jesus' finished work for us on the cross. Let me read it to you again. Romans 4, verse 25 says this. Amazing words. Jesus, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. In this short verse, at the end of Romans chapter 4, Paul sums up everything he's previously said over the first four chapters of his letter to the Romans. And we looked at this word that he uses in verse 25, justification. And we began to understand that it's a judicial term that a judge would use when pronouncing his final verdict in closing a case at court. When Paul tells us that Jesus was raised for our justification in verse 25, he's declaring to us that our lives have been examined and judged by God in Christ Jesus. And a verdict has been reached regarding your life. A verdict has been reached regarding my life. And it's been pronounced by God. 
the God of the universe, the judge of all the earth, in the courtroom of heaven. This verdict has been pronounced over all who have placed simple faith and trust in Christ Jesus. And that verdict is this, not guilty, acquitted of all sin, innocent and pardoned of all punishment. This is the unchanging, unalterable, pronounced verdict that God has declared regarding your life. It stands forever. It cannot be altered or undone because of the finished work of Christ Jesus in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection and ascension to heaven. It's forever done, forever achieved. His work is complete. And when you begin to think about these wonderful things, when you begin to realize them and they begin to really become the substance of your life, you begin to understand really there's no excuse to grumble. There's no excuse to really be downcast in light of such glorious good news. It's hard to ever have a bad day when you really get to grips with this. And that's why Paul could move through every circumstance as hard as it got. And that man sometimes came under the crushing weight of life, but he could move through it with great strength because his heart was established in the word and the revelation of this good news in Christ Jesus. We also remembered Jesus' final word on the cross before he committed his spirit into the hands of the Father. In relation to our salvation, he cried, It is finished. Paid in full. We owed a debt we could never pay. Jesus paid a debt that he did not owe and he paid it in full for every human being that will place simple trust and faith in his work on the cross. Paul declares in this very verse that Christ died for our offenses and he finished and he paid in full for every single offense that has occurred in our lives. Now added to this fact that we are innocent of all charges before God, Paul also assures us that God has gone a step further as he always does. He goes beyond your imagination. He does exceedingly abundantly above all that you can ask or think. I mean, just to be acquitted of all wrong, acquitted of all crime in the court of heaven would be good enough to face no impending penalty of judgment before God is, is glorious in and of itself. If you, if you just have that, you're rich beyond measure. But Paul goes under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. He goes another step. And he says, not only are you faultless before God, not only are you now innocent, God has imputed his righteousness, his own righteousness to your life 
account. There's been a huge exchange, a huge transfer. God's own righteousness now becomes your righteousness in Christ Jesus. He talks about this incredible exchange in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 where God's righteousness is imputed to our lives and our sin was imputed over to Christ. These are holy words, wonderful words, not just filling a page in a book. These are realities that have occurred once and for all and forever. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, Paul says this, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You're not guilty. You're pardoned. You're innocent. You have the very righteousness of God imputed to your life, transferred over into your life account as a result of Christ Jesus. And also, as Paul is teaching about justification, especially in Romans chapter 4, as he points back to Abraham, he wants all of us to understand that our justification before God does not occur after a trial period. You know, you have to complete a trial period or we'll observe your faithfulness and after we've observed you and scrutinized your behavior and observed your good works and monitored them, then you might be able to be justified. No, it's not a trial period like you go through for six months when you get a new job. No, justification by faith is instantaneous the moment that you place simple faith, simple trust in Jesus' finished work on the cross. Instantaneous justification, instantaneous pronouncement, not guilty, innocent, pardoned of all sin, no imminent doom of God's judgment. God's wrath is lifted off you and placed in Christ and you are pardoned and free and righteous holding God's righteousness to your account in his sight. This is what he's saying. You can hear the man bursting at the seams with excitement as he announces this glorious gospel, this wonderful good news. Justified in a moment when we place our trust in Christ Jesus to save us. It simply means this, the person who has been a faithful follower of Christ for 50 years is no more justified than a person that receives Christ this very moment into their heart. All believers, young and old, enjoy the same blessings immediately, continuously and eternally. It's a glorious gospel. Oh, it's a glorious work that Jesus has done, that God has done 
through his son. John, in his gospel, chapter 3, says, Oh, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, Jesus, so that whosoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save it. But in light of this glorious gift, he continues and says, if we, if we reject it, such a wonderful, glorious provision in Christ through God's love, we already stand condemned. But we are those who have placed our faith in Jesus. We really are. But this is only the beginning for the Apostle Paul. He still has far more to say as he continues now from Romans 4 into Romans 5. Because justification by faith brings other wonderful realities into being in our lives. In Romans 5, verse 1 and 2, Paul opens up now another new revelation that comes into play in our lives through justification by faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me read it to you. Romans chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. Paul says this. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And rejoice in hope of the glory of God. What Paul is doing here, he's moving us forward now in our understanding to see that there's more. There's even more for us. He's pronounced that we're not guilty, we're pardoned from all sin. That there's no judgment to face before God. That we have the very righteousness of God. And he goes on because there's more. And many times you, you see Paul struggling to actually communicate all of the wonders that have been given to us in Christ because he doesn't have the vocabulary or the understanding to express it and other apostles. So they would come out with phrases like, this is, this is exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or think. God's provision in Christ Jesus. They just came to the end of themselves. What they could explain, what they could articulate through revelation was glorious and wonderful and off the chart. But many times, because of their limited ability to understand what was ahead, they just encapsulated it in. It's going to be glorious. And we're heading to the glory of God. But here, he's moving us forward in our understanding to show us that there's more. That justification by faith gives us access into through Jesus Christ. Now through the first four chapters of his letter to the Romans, Paul in several ways wants to establish our desperate need, our sinful state, outside of Christ and in several ways 
He labors, bringing out statements like, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. And he, he elaborates in detail man's complete hopeless state, his sinful state outside of Christ Jesus. And he's doing this not to rub our noses in a history that we've received forgiveness for. He's doing this for us to understand the incredible sacrifice that Jesus has given on the cross to die for us, for our sin, and to save us and to bring us faultless before the throne of God. He shows us our sinful condition. He shows us our, our desperate need of a Savior. But He doesn't just leave us hanging there. He shows us the complete, wonderful, finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross as He died for our offenses and as He was raised for our justification. He labors on the fact that you can't work for this righteousness. You can't work for this relationship that we crave for. It's impossible. And he shows us completely in his arguments that he makes. Very important that it's completely futile to try and work, work and labor to be righteous before God. Why? Because it's all been done in Christ Jesus. He's done the work. He's, he's sweat blood. His hands were pierced. His feet was nailed. His side, a spear went into. A, a crown of thorns was pressed into his head. His back was opened and plowed like a field, Isaiah said. For us, he did the work. He paid the price. He absolved us of all debt before God. He wants to show us, you see, that the only way into this new relationship with God is through Jesus Christ. No other way. Jesus actually said, didn't he, when he was talking one day, I am the way the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He wasn't being arrogant or proud when he said that. He was the only one that could bring us back to the Father. And he did. He did. He finished his work. Paul, joining with that in his words to us, says that Jesus is the only way. He's the only one. And he brings us to this place where he shows us that the wonderful the realities that justification gives us is this, peace with God. You have peace with God. It's a fixed position. It's not something that moves or fluctuates you have as much harmony in your relationship with God as Jesus does because you're in him 
You have peace with God. You're not at war with God. You're not. This peace isn't subject to emotional change and feeling. It's a fixed, permanent place. The justification through Christ has brought us into our present position of peace with God is forever. It's eternal. It can't be broken. You can't be separated from it. It's a permanent, eternal position that Jesus has brought us into because now God is our Father. Father. Listen to how Paul describes all of these wonderful realities that have come into play as a result of our justification through Jesus Christ in verse 2. Because not only do we have peace with God, he also assures us that because Jesus has secured our peace with God, we gain access by faith into God's grace. Verse 2, Romans 5 says this, Through whom, Jesus, also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. It's Jesus that's given us peace with God. It's a permanent position that can never be broken. But also, it's Jesus that gives us access into this grace in which we stand. Now, Paul has been very, very careful about the words that he uses. He's not just pulling words out of the air and just trying to fill a page. This is revelation of God. This is the gospel that needs to be communicated to all men everywhere. And he's very particular about the words that he uses. And this word access that he uses is a very important word. It's the Greek word prosago. And this word prosago has an amazing picture in it. The picture is that of being introduced or being personally ushered and escorted into the presence of royalty through the favor of another. The picture is of Jesus taking you and I by the arm and giving us our own personal introduction to God. Jesus does not introduce us into the presence of the Father in groups or, or as couples. Jesus personally takes you because he has been because you have been bought by his blood. Because he has purchased you in his finished work and paid in full and taken. So the sufferings and the beatings and the, the tortures and the very wrath of God. You are his prize. You are the one that he died for. It brings him great pleasure to take us by the arm and introduce us one by one into the presence of the Father. 
You have a personal escort, a personal introduction, personal access into the very presence of God. That is what Paul is saying. And it was incredible news, radical message. Jesus, the door, has given us access into the holiest place of all, the very presence of God. And our standing in this grace is not in an environment of condemnation or judgment or scrutiny or vengeance. But we stand because we've been given this introduction and this entrance into God's presence in the sheer, undeserved, incredible kindness of God. We've gained access. You've gained your introduction. And it's not a one-off visit. It's not something you go into and then come out of. Paul shows us this very clearly when he pictures Adam and Christ. We were in Adam, but now we're in Christ. When you come into Christ, you don't go back into Adam for a week or two. No, you're in Christ. There's a permanence now, an eternal permanence about your residence. And you have access because of Christ into this glorious grace of undeserved favor. It's a permanent place of residence that you have taken up as a result of Christ's finished work for you on the cross as you place simple faith, simple trust in him. Do you know what? The devil doesn't want you to know this. When he's accusing you and trying to bring up old things about your life and drag you down and, feel, and, and, and getting you to feel out of place with God, he doesn't want you knowing this. No, you're justified. There's not an accusation that can stand in God's presence about your life. Why? Because it's instantaneous, not guilty, pardoned from all sin. No impending judgment hanging over your head. You are the very righteousness. You are the very righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. It's imputed. God doesn't take it back. He really doesn't. Have you ever had anything given to you? And then a couple of months later, the person who gave it to you wants it back. We've had a couple of those. I want it back. I shouldn't have given it you. I didn't mean to give it you. I kind of said I'd give it to you, but really I meant you could borrow it. Now, God doesn't take any gift back that he gives you. It's imputed righteousness. It's given you eternally. You are faultless before the throne of grace. We've got to start really processing this, understanding it, speaking it over our lives in the face of the enemy and really relishing in it. We really have. Access into this grace in which we stand. That's what he says. And it's incredible because God's people, you see, Israel never had access. They didn't have an introduction into God's presence. Like we didn't have an introduction into God's presence. In the temple at Jerusalem, strict laws and boundaries divided 
people and separated them from God. God could be worshipped, but only at a distance. And they'd been like this for thousands of years. God's special people, chosen by him, under his goodness, under his favor, following his promises. And he led them and has led them and has favored them and still favors them. But to get close to God was impossible because the law condemned. The law held them out. The law meant a curse was hanging over their heads in relation to getting close to God. The temple in Jerusalem was separated and divided into different courts. The court of the Gentiles. The court of women. The court of Israel or the court of men. And the court of priests. The court of Gentiles was where Gentiles were allowed to come into, but it was the outer court on the fringe. They could go no further in the temple than that outer court. Then there was the court of Israel where Jews, circumcised men, could go and they could go in a little bit closer to offer their sacrifice to the priests, to give it to the priests. The court of women separated them from God's presence. And then finally you had the court of priests where the Levitical priests could only go. And they would sacrifice the offerings that the people would give to appease God's wrath. But it could never take away sin. And once a year the high priest went into the holy place of all and made offering for the whole nation. But there was a sense of fear. There was a sense of uncertainty. And over all of the en entrances hung the placard in both Greek and Latin. Do not enter, punishable by death. If you were uncircumcised, if you were a Gentile and you walked into the court of the Jews, you would face punishment, the punishment of death. If you were a Jew and you entered into the court of priests, the verdict was clear. You would come under the punishment of death. And certainly if you were a Levitical priest and you went into the Holy of Holies, outside of the prescribed time or any time, you would die. Only God could change this. Only God could make the difference. The message for all people in the temple was keep your distance. Stay within the boundaries. But when Jesus cried, it is finished, paid in full. 
The veil in the temple, Luke 23, verse 45, tells us was rent, ripped open from top to bottom. Now the message had changed. Now access had been given. All were welcome, not just into the outer court or the court of the Jews or the court where the Levitical priests performed their sacrifices, but into the very Holy of Holies. God's own presence was open and accessible for both Gentile and Jew alike. In fact, Paul in Ephesians actually tells us that through Jesus, the two, both Gentile and Jew, have become one wonderful body in Christ. It's glorious. And we are accepted in this wonderful vine that has grown for thousands of years. And even though it's been threatened and people have tried to cut and kill and destroy the Jewish people, God has, God has been their sustainer. God has been the life in this vine that we have been grafted into. Hallelujah. The two have become one. It's absolutely glorious. Can you imagine the mind of these men? The excitement in their heart as they proclaimed this. This is what Paul declared. This is the wonderful news that he gives to everyone. We have access, access, an introduction a personal introduction into the very presence of God by faith into this grace in which we stand. We're standing in it. Not once a year, like the high priests, or on the fringe, like the Gentiles. We are in it permanently. Because Paul uses another important word when he uses and takes up this word stand. When he says that we stand in this grace, he's implying that there's great stability, great security. Stand means a place of solid footing or a place where you belong by right. You're not a foreigner in there. You're not an alien. You're not an enemy. You belong there by right because of Jesus. Stand carries the idea of permanence and being firmly fixed and immovable. You are permanently and eternally standing in God's grace, in His pleasure, because Jesus died for your offenses and was raised for your justification, and you believed it. He did all the work, took all the effort out, and we are simply the recipients of amazing love, amazing grace, and the inheritors of eternal life and wonder. You don't have to creep or crawl into God's presence or grovel anymore like a worm. It's not, it's not right. Jesus, it actually dishonors Jesus' work. 
And sometimes, you know, we, that would be our natural tendency. Oh, God, I'm sorry. And, and, and I've done that. Why? Because it's your natural tendency. But, you know, doesn't it dishonor the work of Jesus? Doesn't it dishonor the, the payment in full and the cry and the pronouncement of finished when, when he gave his life as a substitutionary sacrifice on the cross? For me to go into the presence of God crawling and groveling like a worm, doesn't it dishonor what he's done? It does, surely. Because Jesus, now, you see, they just keep, un this just keeps unraveling. It, you, I mean, this just, you don't get to the end of this stuff. You won't, you won't get to the end of it. And there's plenty of Bible verses that show you this. You just don't get to the end of God's goodness. You do not get to the end of the blessing. You do not get to the end of the riches of God's grace in Christ Jesus. It's impossible. It's trying to, it's, Charles Spurgeon said, it's like trying to capture all of the oceans of the world on a teaspoon. It's immense, it's glorious. Jesus, listen, has presented you before the Father as perfect. Now that might not be your description of you <laughs> over this last past week. And it might not be my description of me either, okay? But if, 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 we were to, if we were to ask God to give us an accurate description of our lives in Christ, it would be summed up in one word, perfect. Perfect. We'd never dare think it. We'd never dare say it. That's why God goes ahead through his servants to proclaim it in his word. Listen to what Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12 to 14 says about this. But this man Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. Listen, verse 14, here it comes. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. You are perfected forever. Hallelujah. I think we couldn't give him an applause for that. Perfected. Perfected forever. Faultless, innocent, not guilty before the throne of grace. The, the righteousness of God has been imputed to your life. And now he's sanctifying us, changing us so that every area of our lives conforms to Christ. Hebrews chapter 10 also explains that because we have been perfected forever, because we are justified through Christ Jesus, now we have boldness to enter the holiest place by the blood of Jesus. You see, it's not done as a result of our good works. It's not done as a result of what we can do. It's done, completed, finished, far, far before we were ever born. Hebrews 10 Verse 19 to 22 says this, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter 
the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with true heart in full, full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. We can go into his presence boldly. We stand in this grace, in his presence. And with bold assurance, we can make our request known unto God. Jesus said, whatever you ask in my name, that the, that, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified. Ask anything in my name and I will do it. Why can we do that? It's because where we stand, we stand in his grace. And then finally, Paul encourages us at the end of verse 2 of Romans chapter 5 to rejoice. Well, you would. When you understand this, when we, when we begin to put this together and see the implications for our lives on a practical plane in our day-to-day -day living, that's all you can do. You, you rejoice and you explode with gratitude and love and thankfulness. You rejoice. He says, and we make our boast in hope of the glory of God. We don't ever have to be downcast. I know we get our, our ups and downs in life. And, you know, we carry frailly these emotions that seem so inconsistent many times with the Word of God. But how about opening our minds and allowing the Holy Spirit to open our eyes and to give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Christ Jesus and allowing this to unpack itself in our lives so that we can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God that we are in and we are heading towards. Finally, Paul talks about this glory. This glory of God. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7. And now, by the Holy Spirit, he's seen far, far beyond this world, this time-space world in which we live that seems so fallen and broken and unjust and he looks by the Holy Spirit into eternity what does he say about eternity for the believer many things but there's one thing that he says in Ephesians 2 that I want us to see because it reveals the endless scope of blessing the endless reserve of God's love and kindness towards you because you're in Christ. God just wants to get to you. Not to judge you, but to lavish his goodness, lavish his kindness. Pour it all on for eternity. 
Ephesians chapter 2 verse 7 says this, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Who's in Christ? Hallelujah. Who is in Christ? We are in Christ and even beyond this world. We enter into eternity with nothing to fear. But everything to hope for. And that hope is certain, not unsure. Founded on the finished work of Christ Jesus. Where God in the ages to come will show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us. Finally, let me read this, and then we're going to sing. I'm going to pray over you that we receive this and that the Holy Spirit will help us to understand it and apply it to our lives. But let me read these words to you from Romans chapter 8, verse 31 to 39. In light of what we've been talking about, in light of Jesus' finished work, in light of the fact that you're not guilty, that you're innocent before God, that there's no punishment due you because of Christ, in light of you ha having the righteousness of God, it being imputed to you because of Christ's finished work, in light of you having access into this grace in which you now stand permanently. In light of you having peace with God, let me read to you from Romans chapter 8, verse 31 to 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. God, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who has died and furthermore is also risen. Who is even at the right hand of God who also makes intercession for us? Who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. We're going to sing, why don't you stand to your feet and let's applaud our Lord and our Savior, Jesus. Come on, let's give him praise. Let's give him praise. Father, I thank you for every one of your people here this morning. We've heard your word to us.
We've recalled it in your presence and what you have done for us, Jesus. We will never, ever be able to praise you enough. We will never, ever be able to give you thanks. Oh, God, that you would save us truly. Lord, like has been sung, we sing amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Oh God, the security of knowing that we stand in your goodness and in your grace. Lord, I pray as we stand in your presence today, Holy Spirit, you would help us to now see this as the new reality for our lives. Lord, Holy Spirit, go to work, we pray. You're the teacher. And we need teaching. Teach us about these things. You're the helper. Holy Spirit, would you help us with those things that we battle with sometimes? Help us, Holy Spirit. And Holy Spirit, you even tell us about things to come way ahead of us to create hope, to generate expectation regarding, Lord, our life with you, even beyond this world. Holy Spirit, we are your people, purchased by your blood. There's no way you're going to hold back. There's no way you've been sent as the promise from the Father through Jesus. There is no way that you're going to back off. You're going to bring us into everything that your word declares. And Lord, I pray as your people, we would put on the armor, helmet of salvation, knowing our complete rest in you because of what you've done. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. It's been imputed and given. A great exchange has taken place. Your righteousness for our unrighteousness because of the cross. Pray we put it on, Lord. Let our hand hold that sword of the Spirit and the other hand holding that shield of faith to quench every fiery dart of the devil. Oh, it's more than able to extinguish it and put it out. Let us hold it up with conviction, I pray. And know the power of that shield of faith. Hallelujah. And Lord, our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, that we would go into our world and carry this glorious news, this wonderful news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus died for our sins, paid the price in full, bore the penalty of our sin so he could bring us home into a loving relationship with our Father forever. We thank you for it, Lord, and I pray you would settle it, settle it on us. We live in you. We move in you. We have our being in you, and we thank you. We thank you for it. And all God's people said, amen. Come on.